I'm going to read from Psalm 51, first of all. It's a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, for you are God my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, you, O God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Oh, good morning, one and all. It's lovely to see you. So we're looking at prayer. And we're looking at uh, prayer through the understanding of uh, the whole Bible. So we're looking at the Lord's Prayer and then we're going to other parts in the Bible to understand and to appreciate what Jesus is saying in the Lord's Prayer. So if you were with us last week, we were thinking about hallowed be your name. What does that mean? And we went to Psalm 63 to think about that. And uh, this week we're looking at uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, where Jesus says, forgive us our debts. Or your Bible might say, forgive us our trespasses or forgive us our sins. What does it mean for Jesus to say, forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us? What does it mean for us to do that? And what does it mean for us to pray that? So we're looking at Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is one of those passages that is up there with one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible for two reasons. It is the go-to passage if you want to understand what the Bible means about confession, or another way of saying that, which is repentance. What does the Bible mean where it says you should confess your sins, you should repent of your sins? 
you turn to Psalm 51 and you can understand that. But it's also a very, very well-known part of the Bible, not just for a model of confessional repentance, but because of the events that caused David to confess and repent of his sins. Let me remind you of the backstory. It says it just in the sentence or verse zero at the top of the psalm. It says that David, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and Nathan came and spoke to him. There was once a king called uh, David. He was the king of Israel, God's covenant people. He was the king of the whole nation. And yet he saw in his eye and in his heart he prized someone else's wife. Her name was Bathsheba. His loves became disordered. And rather than loving God, he loved her. And so he would, was determined to do whatever he needed to do to have her, to get her. So he arranged for her husband to die. He arranged for her husband to be isolated in battle for the rest of the troops to, to draw back so he was all alone and he was doomed to certain death. He then thought all was well. He had covered his tracks until Nathan comes in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11 and 2 Samuel chapter 12. You can read these words. After adultery and after the cover-up or attempted cover-up, Nathan, the prophet of God, came to David, God's king, and says these words. I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a parable, said Nathan. Imagine, imagine there was a king and uh, he owned a vast flock of sheep. And then he got hungry and he wanted to have a great meal. And uh, rather than choosing one of his own little lambs, there was another shepherd and he just had one. He just had one sheep and rather than uh, choosing to, to slaughter and enjoy the produce of his own crop and his own flock, he decided to say, no, I'm going to take the sheep from the flock of one person with one sheep and I'm going to uh, slaughter that animal and I'm going to enjoy the food of someone else's flock. Imagine that. What would you say, David, said Nathan, if, uh, if someone were to do that? What should be done to that rich person? Well, that man should die, says David. And then Nathan, with the uh, closest to the heart application in any sermon ever, kind of says, well, oh yeah, you're the man. You are that man. And David is cut to the heart. Cut to the heart for what he's done and the truth in a mirror that's been shone into his face by God's prophet, Nathan. You are that man. David had made the choices to pursue his, his passion, his loves. God was taken off the throne of his heart and he made a series of choices that led like a, a staircase further and further down and further and further away from God's love and his laws. And as much as he tried to cover it up, he couldn't because God knows what every man and what every woman does. But then we have Psalm 51. That's what happened in history. And then we have Psalm 51, which is David's response to those events. And let me ask you a question. David manages to blow up his life with a series of decisions that he makes, pursuing his passions and seeking to cover up his uh, deliberate mistakes and his sins and his rebellious acts. And so do we. 
We might do it on such a public display. We might not have murdered or arranged the murder of anyone. We may or may not have committed adultery. We certainly murdered people in the uh, car park queue when we wanted petrol <laughs> in the fuel sh shortage when you're saying, let me in and I'll bump the car if you don't let me in. We've done all sorts of things in our hearts. We've wounded people with our words. We've got a search history on our computer that we're ashamed of. We can blow up our lives in a host of different ways. But what? What if there is a way? What if there is a remedy? What if there is a cure for whatever way we blew up our life? What if there is a way for you to do something and come through the other side whole and restored? I mean, put your hand up if you would be interested in that. I am. Trust we all are. Psalm 51 shows that there's a way to do it. The Bible says it's called repentance. There's fake repentance and there's true repentance. And in Psalm 51, we have a model of a man who is repentant, truly, deeply, genuinely repentant. No, not just tears, not just facade, not just anger, deep, true, real repentance. Let's look at it, shall we? Number one. It's a, it's a matter of uh, stopping something, of starting something, and how to do it. Stopping, starting, and how to do it. First of all, if you're going to live a life of repentance and confession from Psalm 51, David shows us you need to stop doing something. You must stop doing something. Verse 5, David says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Here's David processing recent events. Nathan has shone up the mirror of truth into his face and into his life and into his heart. I know what you've done. I know what you've been. I know how you've behaved. And this is David starting to ruminate and to process the truth that he has seen. And David's saying, I can see now from the very beginning of my life, I was sinful. It was the air that I breathed. It was the blood going through my veins. It's what made my heart work. And my recent actions are just an overflow, an expression of what's going on in my heart. And I can't hide it from anyone. And I've been like this not because of poor education or poor upbringing or poor circumstances or a bad day. I behave like this and I have behaved like this from the very moment I was born. I was conceived in this way. It's not my mum's fault. I'm not casting any aspersions on her. But as soon as I took my first breath, I had the capacity to behave like this. And in my adult life, I've shown how ugly it can be. I've always been like this, but I've never really seen it before. That's what David sees. Now let me tell you about a TV series that I've never watched. I've read a, a review of this series. It's called Broadchurch. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a, it's a murder mystery. It's kind of a whodunit. There's a few nodding uh, heads. You can tell me if my uh, research is right. It's a story of two detectives trying to solve a crime. One of them is local. Her name is Ellie. One of them is from out of town. His name is Hardy. Ellie is struggling to come to terms with the crime that's been committed in her, own, in her own town, in her own little village. She's struggling to come to terms with the actions of the human heart. There is no one in the village and all the people that I know that has the capacity to commit such a crime. She's struggling. Think, I know all the people, I go to the same pub, same post office, same local school, no one could do such a thing. That's her struggle. In comes Hardy. Hardy's hard-nosed and tough and cynical. Must be a copper. And he comes in from out of town and he says, no, no, no. If you know the human heart like I do, 
everyone here in your village is a suspect. Everybody has the capacity to do it. There's a conversation that sounds just like Psalm 51 from the writer and creator of Broadchurch. Hardy says, the hard-nosed outsider, anybody is capable of murder given the right circumstances. But then Ellie says, no, don't believe it. Not true, I know my people of my village. Most people have a moral compass, she says. Then Hardy says, trouble is, moral compasses break. Isn't that true? Moral compasses break. One of the key aspects, friends, of developing your prayer life is to understand Psalm 51, verse 5. It says this, I was sinful from birth. I'm not in any illusion about the capacity I have in my heart, says King David, to sin. I thought I could cover it up. And now Nathan has shown me the truth of God. Another part of the Bible, right at the beginning, in Genesis chapter 4, sin is described like an animal crouching at the door. It has great capacity to do terrible harm. Its desire is to have you, but you must master it. Cain is getting angry, he's getting upset about his brother Abel, and God says those words. Cain is uh, just on the precipice of doing something bad and terrible and wicked. And God says, you've got to understand your heart. He says it to Cain, and he says it to David, and he says it to you and me. Be under no illusion that in 72 hours or thereabouts, each one of us could destroy our lives, could do terrible damage, could do terrible harm to other people. I, and I have been, and I've done it and I'm ashamed of it. I and you too have the capacity of great cruelty to other people. We can be mean and unkind with our words, with our actions, with our thoughts. You and I can be tremendously dishonest. We can be selfish and self-centred. And we can go on and on. We all have the capacity to do what David did, says David from Psalm 51 verse 5. And that may shock you, if you're new to Christian things it may shock you, but until we get control of this particular truth in the Bible, we will never be able to pray truly with a repentant heart, because we're delusional, and the Bible says don't be delusional, don't deny your capacity that you have in your heart to sin, stop denying what you're capable of, what David shows us in Psalm 51 verse 5. That's what we must stop, here's two things we must start doing. Here's two things we must start doing. Here we go. Number two. There's a kind of repentance that's a bit like a smoke machine. You know, sometimes if you used to watch Top of the Pops, I've not seen it for years, in the 70s, 80s, 90s when it was good, they used to have smoke machines and sometimes the guy at the front got it wrong and you couldn't see he was performing because there's too much smoke and too much atmosphere. Sometimes when it comes to repentance, when it comes to confessing your sin, there is fake repentance that acts just like a smoke machine at a nightclub or a pub or on top of the pops or a concert, something like that. It just clouds what actually is going on. There's lots of tears, there's lots of sadness, but actually you have to re return very quickly to what you've done before. Then there's real repentance, modelled by King David, that leads to life. There may be tears, and if there are tears, they're true. How do you get to the point where true repentance is a reality in your own heart and life. Two things that we need to start doing. Number one, end the blame shifting. 
put an end to blame shifting. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 of Psalm 51. David says, I have done evil. I've done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Is David processing the actions with Bathsheba, adultery, letting down the people of God? He should be leading them in a godly way and also murdering one of his loyal servants. And there's nothing of the modern non-apology. Have you spotted that? Maybe on the news, maybe in the newspaper, maybe in your own experience. There's a modern art of uh, the non-apology, of saying sorry without ever mentioning the word, so you're not really sorry at all. This is how you do it. I hope I'm not teaching anyone anything that's going to be unhelpful for you. Please don't use this in your life. But you can say something like this, for a modern non-apology, well, mistakes have been made. So what are you saying? You're not taking any responsibility, you're just saying, well, mistakes have been made. Notice David does not blame anything else. David could say, well, actually, I had a really bad upbringing. That's why I committed adultery. That's why I arranged for someone to die. Actually, um, it's really hot living where I am, and so uh, I was just having a bad day. The heat got to me, and I'd made a bad decision. He doesn't blame his upbringing. He doesn't blame his environment. He doesn't blame anyone or anything else. Look at verse 4. You, O Lord, you, God, are just in your judgment. I deserve everything that you give to me. He also says, I have done evil. I have done, not you, not they. He's taking personal responsibility, no blame shifting. There's loads of ways that we can blame shift. Here are three, there are others, but here are the big ones. If I want to blame shift when I've done something wrong, this is where I begin. I make it smaller than it actually is. I minimise it, I reduce it. Okay, Just like I pinch it on my phone if it were a, uh, an image. Well, I know what I said was kind of bad, mistakes have been made, but uh, it shouldn't have bothered her as much as it did. Okay, I'm making it smaller. I'm not taking responsibility, I'm making it smaller. There's another one, you can kind of relativise it. I'm comparing now with other people. If you say what I did was wrong, well that's fine. Yeah, yeah, I can take that, mistakes have been made. But a lot of people don't see it as wrong. Might be wrong in your eyes, but there's a load of people I could show you. So I'm making it smaller and then I'm comparing with other people. Yeah, I know I've done something wrong, but loads of people do worse. And then I can make excuses. That's the third one. I actually really got a headache today. And so that's why I was really leery with you. I'm cross with you. Sorry I was short, but any apology that has the word but in it is a non-apology. If you had my parents you'd behave like this too. That's what my kids say to me. Now, real repentance ends with the end of blame shifting. Verse 4. I have done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David blames no one. He doesn't make his sins smaller. He doesn't compare them with other people. I know I arranged for a murder of one person, but the guy next door, he, he beheaded a thousand doesn't do anything like that. He doesn't make excuses. You are just in your judgment. I have done evil. He takes responsibility for what he's done without minimising, without relativising. And so his confession is true. Repentance begins with the end of blame shifting. But also the second thing is a deep change of heart. 
a deep change of heart. Verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned. Now this doubling up of the words, you, you only, is very significant. It means that there's an intense, loving, heartfelt response from David to God. You see it on the cross, don't you? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus could have said, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the doubling up that you see in Hebrew and Greek is a way of emphasis. It's a way of loving, heartfelt response. And David is saying against you and you only, he's doubling up to say, I really know that I have sinned against you and against you alone. I'm owning what I've done and it breaks my heart that I've broken your heart and I've broken your law. But then he says only. He says only against you and you only. Now, well, hang on, David, that's not true. Uh, let's pause there. I mean, didn't Bathsheba, didn't you have an abuse of power in that relationship? Yep. Yes, he did. What about the fact that he withdrew his troops and misused his uh, military power and authority so that one man was exposed and one man died and he was a loyal man at that? What about letting down the whole people of Israel by the way he behaved? Now, of course, he has failed on multiple levels in this stepping down, this staircase of his own actions. That each action is worse than the one before, you could argue. But foundationally, David says, actually, beneath all those, the foundational sin that I have committed is against you and you alone. came across this great quote this week by Martin Luther. Martin Luther is a monk, and you can, it's said that you can make Martin Luther's words say anything about any topic that you're looking at, but I think I'm quoting him fairly. He says this in one of his books. You know the Ten Commandments? He's talking about the Ten Commandments. Martin Luther says this. You never break commandment number two to ten without first breaking the first one. You never break two to ten without first breaking the first one. This is what he means. Have no other gods before me, says God. That's commandment number one. But there is always a sin underneath that sin. Okay? So, for example, there's something you're putting in place of God, so you reject him and you promote something else. And in so doing, you trample on his goodness and his faithfulness, on his promises and on his character. Here's an example. You should not lie. But when you lie, think about why are you lying? Are you lying to save your reputation? If you want to save your reputation, to save face, that means the most important thing in your heart at that moment is not God, it's you. So you've broken the first <coughs> commandment and you've done that only by breaking commandment thou shalt not lie think about actually i'll stick with lying yes you, you you need to lie because it's an efficient way to make more money at work okay that's, that's the second way that you could do it if you want to do it to break you know you're breaking that commandment because you want to make more money at that moment it's not your reputation that's number one it's not god who's number one either it's the love of money that's number one you see so lying is a way to achieve something else there is a sin underneath the sin that you're committing uh, Martin Luther is saying you need to think that through and that's what David is thinking through to say I don't want to blame anybody else I'm responsible for my actions the real reason I did what I did is because actually I was loving something other than God so yes I, I misused my power in my relationship with Bathsheba with my control of the military with my uh, rule over the king uh, with, with the people of Israel but first of all I broke the first commandment, which is to have no other gods before you. I wasn't loving you as you deserve or as I ought to. 
So no to blame shifting, owning what we do. But also, um, that's the end of uh, that. But it's also, you don't want to go into self-pity as well. You don't want to justify yourself and you don't want to uh, expose self-pity. Self-pity can look like repentance sometimes. It's another way of using the smoke machine. You can just behave like you're angry and upset. But actually you're thinking not about other people. You're certainly not thinking about God. Self-pity is thinking about yourself more. You're fed up with yourself. You're fed up with what's happened. And you're thinking about yourself and you're upset for yourself. David says, no, against you and you only have I sinned. I've dishonoured you. I've grieved you. Look at what he says a little later on in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Because of my actions, I've turned away from you. I've sinned against you. I've replaced you as number one in my heart with my passions. And then I've tried to cover it up, thinking I can do something out of your sight. But I remember a time when I was in the desert and you rescued me. I remember the time when you were close to me. I remember that intimacy and I've lost it because of how I've behaved. Please restore to me a joy that I have lost because of my actions. Before I committed adultery, before I uh, arranged for someone to die, I knew that intimacy and closeness and I want that back more than anything. It's a sign of true repentance when you're not just saying sorry to save your neck. You realise you've sinned against God and against God alone. And the only thing you want is for him to return to you the joy of your salvation. That's why I forgot you, I rejected you, I was ungrateful, I lost sight of all your goodness, because you were not first in my heart. When you see that your sin has grieved and dishonoured God, not just hurt other people, you come to hate the sin itself, not just what has happened because of it. That's what David is modelling for us, that's true repentance, not self-pity, No smoke machine, owning what we've done and seeing that we've sinned against God and God alone. Now we need to be quick, but let's finish up. You stop something, you start doing two things, but how do you get to behave like that? How do you get that new character as we come round the Lord's table? Let's think about that. Where do you get the power to repent in this honest, heartfelt way? Seeing sin for what it is and hating it and longing for God to restore to you the joy of your salvation. Verse 1. Verse 1 says, from David's lips, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Steadfast love, we saw this in Psalm 63 last week. Steadfast love is, is the Hebrew word, chesed, which means steadfast, always and forever love. It means a love that is uh, undeserved, and it's a love that is unconditional. If it's undeserved, you can't lose it. If it's unconditional, you don't deserve it. And here's David, knowing what he's done, knowing what he's tried to hide, he knew that he was a sinner, he knew that he didn't deserve anything, but rather than running away from God, he runs to him. From verse 1. He's absolutely confident as he runs to God and throws himself on the mercy of God that God will hear his prayers because he knows the intimacy that he feels that he has lost because of his sin. He's absolutely confident that God will hear him, that God will hear him as he comes to him in prayer. If David is as confident when he wrote Psalm 51, how much more confident do you think we should be as we come to the Lord's table? 
have mercy on me. He's pleading. And now we come to the Lord's table with so much more revelation from God. We see the whole picture. We know more of God's promise-keeping nature. We have something far better. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, as the sad story continues of David's life, he had a son who died in infancy. A little boy who was born to him. The, the son that was born to him because of the relationship he had with Bathsheba. And his son died tragically when he was just a baby. And he's wrestling with Nathan once again, the prophet of God who showed him the mirror of God's truth. And he's saying, has my son died because of my sins? Is it because of me? Is it karma in a Bible sense? Nathan says, no, your sin has been taken away from you. He's not died because of your sin. He has died tragically for another reason in the wise and mysterious but good promises of God. Wasn't to pay for your sins. Now, how did David know that that was true? David's son did not die for his sins because God's son died for his sins and my sins and your sins too. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence. God didn't. He didn't cast David away. He, he could have done and should have done, but he had mercy on him and he has mercy on you and me as well. Why? Because Jesus was cast away for our sins that he carried. My God, my God, where are you? You're forsaken me. Jesus was forsaken so that we would not be forsaken. Everything David says in Psalm 51, please don't do this to me. God doesn't do to him because he did it to his son. This is the secret of knowing real change of heart, not just being moved by Jesus dying on the cross intellectually, but understanding it emotionally and volitionally. Sin is crouching right at the door of all of our lives. Ray Ortland, in, in a book I'm reading at the minute, puts it like this. We don't conquer our sins by being heroic, by having heroic willpower. We just confess them to death. And that's so helpful. We confess our sins to death. You can't conquer them. Sin is in your heart. It's crouching at the door, waiting to give birth, as it were, to do attack. And so often it's through our tongues and through our actions as well. Let's close with this as we come to the table. You want to know true repentance. It's owning your sin, but it's also coming to the throne of grace. The God that turns no one away because he turned his back on his son will never turn his back on you.